0: Hello, everybody. My name is Eric Wood, and welcome to Eric Talks, the show where I talk about things that are important to me. Um, This episode is kind of another odd one. I was given the honor of being able to give a talk at my college, Corbin University, and this is basically about storytelling and how one can use... The Art of Fictional Storytelling to Center Yourself in the Real World. It's kind of an interesting subject. I touch on Mulan and spiritualism and, and, you know, evolution and all sorts of crazy stuff in this one. So if it's something you're interested in, hope you enjoy it. I also have the privilege today of uh, introducing our speaker, Eric Wood. Eric is the uh, Executive Vice President, um, so not only is he uh, an extremely big encouragement and support for uh, the Cabinet and the upcoming Senate, um, but also to me as a friend. So, without further ado, Eric Wood. My, my name's Eric Wood, um, and yeah, I'm the executive vice president, and uh, yeah, let's just jump right into it, shall we? Um, so this is something that I've been um, thinking about for a very long time. I've, uh, God sent me on this kind of devotional journey about a year ago, and I started to think about it and meditate on it and, and, try, and just try and put it together, I guess, um, and it kind of started with, with this. Oh, I know what I did. There we go. That's a $10 question, isn't it? Uh, it is, when I first brought up the idea of doing this chapel to Eugene Edwards, um, he, was, he was skeptical about whether or not I had uh, enough time to fill a half an hour. Um, <laughs> and this is probably the hardest question I've ever considered in my entire life, and so hopefully I'll be able to entertain you for for half an hour. Um, but it's a powerful question, and, and I want to loom over you like it loomed over me as, as I go through and I, I, I talk about the next couple of steps, because today what we're going to be talking about is, is the power of, of storytelling and, and how that's divine and how it specifically combats that question, a, a belief that, that everything's pointless, that nothing matters, which is a really powerful idea, man. Um, so yeah, why do we tell stories? Well, there's a couple of reasons. They're, they're kind of complicated, and I could do a whole chapel about it, but I'll focus on, on some limited ones. We talk about stories so that we can talk about things that we don't fully understand. So like Tolkien, he didn't understand what it meant to bear an unbearable burden and only be able to carry it because of the grace of others. So he wrote Lord of the Rings, where that exact thing happened, and he kind of tried to work it out. Well, the chief thing that we don't understand is our relationships. I mean, we're not that bright. I mean, you don't even understand how a star is born or dies. What hope do you have of understanding something as complicated as you? Or, you know, let alone anyone else. It's really difficult to understand. You don't get it, but you talk about it all the time. You talk about things you don't understand, which is a neat trick. Um, So as our relationships with ourselves, with others, with God, so let's say, for example, you who's a big fan of the Harry Potter um, books? Yeah, very good. Let's say that you're, you're a girl who's fallen in love with Harry Potter books, and, um, and uh, you get into your head that Harry Potter is what a protagonist looks like, what a hero looks like. And so you think to yourself, well, he's kind, he's clever, and uh, he's respectful, and he's courageous. Okay, those are good things. And you get into your head, that's what a hero looks like. Then you start looking for someone to love and maybe have kids with. And so you start looking for someone who's kind, courageous, and clever. And if that's how he ends up, what do you think your kids are going to be like? And that can compound in an interesting way where, where stories can, can become, become very human, I guess. Now, p- imagine a story even more powerful than Harry Potter. I, I know it's difficult, but really put some effort into it. And, and what you end up with is a story that's, that at the first mumbled words brought life to all creation. And, and molded the soft heart of the universe. That's power, man. And that's incredible. And, and so, well, there are these smart people who got together and thought to themselves, well, what's really a story? And what they came up with basically is that there's only really one story, and it's called the hero's quest. And you know, uh, Joseph Campbell originally thought that was like 25 steps, and uh, some people reduce it down to three steps. I like this one, where you start in a place of comfort It's not perfect, but no one's dying, and so you kind of just stick around there. Um, But then a need is introduced, and your place of comfort is no longer tenable. You can't stay there anymore. So you move into an unfamiliar and scary situation. And then you go on a road of trials, and every weak and broken part of you is just chipped away because it's hard, and you can't carry those things with you. Then you find what you were looking for. You find the need. Oh crap, (laughs) it's not the right need. Or even worse, it's the exact opposite of what you actually needed. Because once again, you're not that clever of a creature. You end up chasing after the wrong things. So you redefine the need. But once you've redefined the need, then you're not lost anymore. You're not in an unfamiliar situation. You know where you need to go. And so you plant yourself and you return. Not necessarily to a place of comfort, but to a familiar place. And then you changed. You're forever changed. You're not the same anymore. And so uh, when I think of that, I think of Mulan. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a great frickin' movie, man. I mean, it's, 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 it's one of the best Disney movies ever. For me, it's tied with Beauty and the Beast. Um, but so think about it. Mulan started in a place of comfort where things sucked, but no one was dying. Um, I, mean, she, I mean, it's a patriarchy, man. Like, it's... it's, it's she, she literally, in the original script, it had Mulan... Um, Um, it opened on Mulan's father insisting that um, unless there were two pigs as a part of the dowry, the wedding was off. And Mulan was was getting harsh on her dad saying, hey, don't hardball these negotiations, man. That's interesting. Because it indicates that Mulan didn't think she was worth two pigs. That man... And then, of course, that was replaced with much lighter song, which basically communicated the same thing. There's this matchmaker who said, look, you're temperamental, you're clumsy, and you won't make a good wife. And in Chinese society, that was the only way she could economically provide for her family. So as a woman, she was cut off from the only way she could help her family. That's hard. Well, but you know, it's fine. But then a need was introduced, war. She had no brothers, so that meant her crippled dad had to go to war, he was gonna die. The comfortable place was no longer tenable. And so she moved, (laughs) she ran, she went into a scary, unfamiliar place, and then was the musical number, I'll make a man out of you, which is Road of Trials. Interesting thing there. She became graceful instead of clumsy, and she lost her temperamentality because in the military, you're not really allowed to have those things. And so she thought she found what needed. She, she became Ping, and she, she threw away everything she despised about herself, her wifishness, her, her clumsiness, her temperamentality And she was who she wanted to be, and she was providing for her family. Those were the needs she was trying to accomplish. But Mushu, her, her clumsy but hard-working conscious, um, said that that wasn't tenable anymore. We can't stay here forever. And lo and behold, she couldn't, and that was destroyed. So she redefined her need and what happened was that she reclaimed everything she tried to kill about herself Everything that she despised about about what she was who she was that was resurrected and She changed forever. So now she's fully Mulan again. There's no parts of her. that are shriveled up and dead It's just life. It's beautiful, man. It's 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 awesome and she's changed forever now Those of you who are familiar with theology might think, oh, that's baptism. (laughs) Um, Mulan was going through a slow, excruciating process of baptism where she started up here and she despised herself because she, she wasn't able to do these things. And so she killed Mulan. She became Ping. Mulan was dead and she liked it that way. But here's the problem. God's plan is not death but resurrection. So she was down here and every part of herself that she thought was evil came back, but perfect and pure. So what's interesting about this is that uh, it doesn't just apply itself in fiction. So if you can close your eyes really quick, um, think about your best memory, not like a single memory, not like the smell of your mom's pie or whatever like that, like a series of moments. I'll bet you anything they structure themselves along these ways. I bet it started with you being on a couch (laughs) and you being pretty comfortable. But then a need was introduced. So you had to get off off the couch. Then you go through a road of trials. You you have to do something to figure out what you were looking for. And then you find the need. Maybe you're going on a date and you end up at a movie theater. But oh crap, when you're at a movie theater, you can't talk with your date. (laughs) So that's not tenable. And so you have to redefine the need, what you're after. And then once you figure that out, oh, it's much more stable now, I figured it out. You've returned, and then something's different about you. Now think about your worst memory. I'll bet you it structures itself in the same way. So this is extraordinarily powerful because, because it's the way you contextualize reality. It's the way that you, you, you understand everything. And it, it comes out in your fiction, it comes out in your memories, and it comes out in your life. And, and it circles around. It just goes and goes and goes until, well, uh, until you, you, you figure it out, I guess. And this can be a virtuous cycle. So, so with each step, if you try to orient yourself towards God and you work really hard, every step you become more and more like God. You become more and more like the hero you're supposed to be. You are designed to be because you're fallen. You're away from it all. And this is not just the story of fiction, not just the story of your memories, it's the story of creation, it's the story of the fall, and, and it's the story of Jesus, it's the story of baptism, it's, it's everything. It's deeper than your bones. It's, 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 it's more important than the, the laws of the universe that hold us together that are so simple we can't understand them. Well, but it can also be corrupted because it's a very powerful thing. And so I think about... um there's this guy Shakespeare wrote about called Richard Third, And he had an interesting quote. Richard III said that, since I cannot prove myself worthy of the fair and well-spoken days, I am determined to prove myself a villain. So he was, he was all deformed, and he was good at killing people, and he, he was all these things, and so they called him a monster and a villain. And he was so desperate to contextualize his life so desperate to have any measure of understanding of what he was supposed to be doing, they said, fine, I'm a villain. I can do that. And the virtuous cycle became a vicious cycle, pulling him further and further away from God. Why would you do that? Why would you let yourself be put into a story that you hated? Because he hated it. But at least he had context. And that's the trick. The worst thing you can do is tell yourself no story at all. Because once you tell yourself no story at all, you have no choice but to fall into a trap of utter despair. Now, not everyone thinks that way. There's this clever guy, and I know I'm gonna mispronounce his name, so I apologize, but John Paul Satir. And John Paul basically said, if we can throw off that old tyrant Yahweh, if we can just get rid of the old value structure, if we can eliminate our context, then the new value structure we create will be a utopia. And it'll be wonderful, and it'll be perfect. He, he was an optimist. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, God redeems. But there's this guy named Tolstoy who thought much more really about this. And he said, if you tell yourself no story, if you believe your life is meaningless, what's the rational response? What's the correct thing to do? And he said, it consists in destroying life. When one has understood th- that it is an evil and an absurdity, a few exceptionally strong and consistent people act so. Having understood the stupidity of the joke that has been played on them, and having understood that it is better to be dead than to be alive, and that it is best of all not to exist, they act accordingly and promptly to end this stupid joke. Since there are means, a rope around one's neck, water, a knife to stick into one's heart, or the trains on the railways, the number of those in our circle who act so become greater and greater. And for the most part, they act so at the best time of their life when their strength of their mind is in full bloom and few habits degradating to the mind have yet to been acquired. When I first read that, I shook and I couldn't move for an hour because I thought about the obituaries of my high school friends, the young, the strong, the of sound mind. And the terrifying thing that he's saying is that this isn't a defect, that this is the rational response to a world that, that believes it's meaningless and pointless. It's a joke, and only the weak would tolerate the joke. That's scary, because it's a powerful idea. Um, so Jean-Paul said that if we eliminate our meaning, we'd be free. Well, there's another guy named Nietzsche, and he told this parable of an old man who, run, who, ran, into, who ran into a market claiming, where is God, where is God? And all the people started laughing at him. (laughs) Like, oh, did he wander off again? Is Is he on a ship? Is he journeying? Or is he scared of us? Have we finally scared him away? And the old man said, no, you don't understand. God is dead and we killed him. And there's not enough water in all of the oceans to wipe away the blood. See, if you try and take the weight of meaning on your own shoulders, It's going to crush you. It's going to utterly destroy you because you're not designed for that. That's not what you're for. You cry out for meaning until you find it or you die. As far as I can tell, those are the only two choices. And I'm sorry for the dark turn. I promise there's light at the end of the tunnel, but um, it gets a little bit darker. So these are two quotes The first is from a guy named Mephistopheles, who's a character in the play Dr. Faustus. He's a demon. He's the devil. Um, And he says, I am the spirit that negates, and rightly so, for all that comes to be deserves to perish wretchedly. T'were better nothing were to begin. Thus everything that your terms, sin, destruction, evil represent, that is my proper element. So that's the devil. And then on the other side, you have King Solomon. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they had no comforter. The power was on the side of the oppressors, and they had no comforter. And I declare that the dead who were already dead were happier than the living who were still alive, but better than both was the one who was never born. What do you do when the devil and the wisest man in human history sing in perfect chorus? You don't sleep very well, that's the first thing. Um, but so, so if this is such a powerful idea, why don't we buy into it? If this, is, if this dominates the world, and I truly believe this is like the modern philosophy, this is what people actually think, why don't we buy into it? Because it's scary and it's powerful. Well, because it's a lie. <laughs> um, who's read the book of Job? All right, who's read the book of Job beginning to end all the way through? You're liars. <laughs> It's a long book and it's 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 like 50 chapters of poetry about archaic philosophy that doesn't really apply anymore and like it's just crazy man and then and then you have Job who who has a suit against God. I've done nothing wrong and yet I suffer. Therefore God either doesn't exist or doesn't care about me. That's the basic thesis Job was presenting. Okay. And then God shows up and he's given three chapters of poetry. to to tell Job everything he needs to hear. And so what does he say? He shows up and he goes on this rant about these mythical creatures. He, He says, I made the Leviathan. I made the behemoth. The tyrannical forces of society and the tyrannical forces of nature dance for my amusement. I am the Lord your God, terrible to behold. I love you. And what does Job say? I rescind my complaints. Your answer is sufficient. Now, wait a minute. (laughs) Now, if you're anything like me, who's just sat through 50 frickin' chapters of nonsense poetry of Job laying out in like perfect order, his exact complaints against God, and then God shows up, answers none of them, and talks about like lizards and and monsters for a bit, says, I love you, and then Job is satisfied. (laughs) It's, (laughs) it's exhausting. (laughs) And so, but what does it mean? Well, first off, I realize I committed a minor blasphemy, by assuming that Job knew his own suffering better than God did. Because God was actually answering what he was really concerned about. It wasn't that he was unhappy. I mean, for crying out loud, he had three chapters to explain everything Job needed to hear, and Job's happiness didn't even break the top 100. The birth of a baby goat ranked higher than Job's own happiness. (laughs) But what did he say? He said, there's a point I'm powerful. There's a story being told. I know you don't understand it, but I love you, period. And even though that was not a part of anything Job was talking about, God answered it, and Job said, that's sufficient. That's all I need. Once he, had, once he knew there was a context, once he knew there was a point, his suffering became bearable. There was no reference to eternity. There was no reference to happiness. Just the all-powerful maker king saying, I'm powerful. There's a story being told. I love you. That's incredible, man. So, um, there's this wheel, <laughs> and and it's it seems to be really important to God's design because it's written on all of your hearts. It's the way that you can comprehend the world. It's 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 so powerful. And so what are we going to do with it? <laughs> well, I don't know. And I don't understand it because I'm small and stupid and, and, and have nowhere near the knowledge necessary to comprehend God's creation. But I know that it means something. And I want to know, where does God live in every single one of those folks? Where is God in your comfort? Where is God in your need? Where is God when you enter an unfamiliar and uncomfortable place? Where is God on the road of trials? Where is God when you find the need, but it's not what you were supposed to be looking for this whole time? Where is God when you reevaluate the need? Where is God when you return to a place of order? Where is God when you change forever? Those are not easy questions. It took me nearly a year before they even realized those were the questions I was supposed to be asking. So, I put this together. I thought to myself, well, there are, um, there are eight pegs there and there are, uh, there are nine months in a school year. So, I want to invite you on, on a devotional journey that I'm going to be taking that once a month, every month, I'm going to tackle a spoke. And I want you to tackle it with me. Because I think that, that, that when, when you fall into this pit of despair and the belief that nothing you can do matters, you need a comprehension of where you are in your story. Because they're landmarks and they're light. Because there's a reason you're scared of the dark, because you don't know where you're going. And if you don't know where you're going, if you don't know where you've been, you have no choice but to fall into this mist of despair. So might as well understand the roadmap that you're on. And I I think that this has something to do with it. And yeah, I'm not really good at ending things, (laughs) which is probably why I need to figure this out. Um, But that's the question I want to ask, and that's the question I want to ask with you guys. I want to invite you on that. So if you're interested, that's what I'm going to be doing this year. That's what I'm going to be praying through this year. That's what God has been taking me on this year. So that's really, that's really all I have. <laughs> um, if you want to talk with me over the year, please do. And if, if you need any, any help at all, go to ASB. <laughs> they love you deeply. With all that said, I'm going to close this in prayer. Um, Dear Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for this opportunity to, to meditate on things too wonderful for our understanding. Thank you that you haven't placed us in a meaningless world. Thank you that you haven't left us without hope or salvation. Thank you for baptism. Thank you for redemption. Thank you for for redeeming every part of our broken and dead hearts. I want to lift up this entire campus. I want to lift up this entire room. And I want you to bless every bit of it. Not my will, but let your will be done through and through and through and through. I pray that we can scream your story from the rooftops so that the world can know your redemptive power and your love. In your precious and holy name, amen.